Hi, I'm Stephen Cottowich. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 10, Patent, Promote, Sell, 1887 to 1888. Last time, benefiting from funding and facilities to fully pursue his inventions for the first time, Tesla finally figured out how to combine alternating currents to create a rotating magnetic field in his motor. This week, we'll see Tesla and his business partners begin to plan out how best to capitalize on the inventions he was cranking out, culminating in Tesla's full-on arrival as a figure on the cutting edge of the electrical field in the late 1880s, in his address to the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. In January 1887, the United States Senate authorizes the Navy to lease Pearl Harbor as a naval base. During a snowstorm at Fort Kehoe in Montana, the largest ever snowflakes are recorded. The snowflakes were 15 inches wide and 8 inches thick. That's 38 centimeters wide by 20 centimeters thick for those of you who are metrically inclined. And that's your fun fact for today. In Paris, construction begins on the foundation of the Eiffel Tower. On February the 2nd, the first ever Groundhog Day is observed in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. In March, Anne Sullivan begins teaching Helen Keller, who overcame years of isolation due to a complete lack of language, to become the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree as well as an author, speaker, and activist. Also in March, just a touch late for the winter season, Chester Greenwood patents earmuffs. On April 4th, Argonia, Kansas elects Susanna M. Salter as the first female mayor in the United States. On May 9th, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show opens in London, England. In June, Herman Holerith, regarded as one of the seminal figures in data processing, was granted a patent for his punched card calculator. He would go on to found a company that was a very early forerunner of the company that eventually became IBM, and the principles that underlay his punched card calculator would dominate the field for nearly a century. On June 21st, the British Empire celebrated Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, marking the 50th year of her reign as sovereign. June 23rd saw the Rocky Mountains Park Act become law in Canada, creating the nation's first national park at Banff. It is one of the singularly most beautiful places I have ever been, and if you ever have the chance to go, even for a day trip, I recommend it. In July, James Blythe operates the first working wind turbine at Maykirk, Scotland. The electricity it generated was used to power the lights in Blythe's holiday home there. While he received recognition for his contributions to science and electrical engineering, Blythe's invention was seen as uneconomical, and no more wind turbines would be built in the United Kingdom until 1951, some 64 years later. Today, of course, electrical power derived from turbines that are the descendant of Blythe's first prototype are an increasingly efficient and economical way to generate clean power for the modern world. Sometimes, I guess, you just have to play the long game. Also in July, six months after work began on its base, construction starts on the iron structure of the Eiffel Tower. 
On July 6th, King Kalakaua of Hawaii is forced by anti-monarchists to sign the Bayonet Constitution, stripping him of much of his authority, as well as disenfranchising most native Hawaiians, all Asians, and the poor. In September, the Yellow River flood begins in China, and the death tolls are staggering. Estimates range between 900,000 and 2 million people killed. November sees the results of the Mickelson-Morley experiment published, which determined that the speed of light was independent of motion. It was the first strong evidence against the then-prevailing theory of the luminiferous ether, and began a line of research that eventually led to Einstein's special relativity. As a side note, Tesla believed to his dying day that relativity was wrong, and he clung stubbornly to the theory of the ether despite overwhelming evidence that it didn't exist. Sherlock Holmes makes his first appearance in print when a study in Scarlet is published in Beaton's Christmas Annual. My boy Emil Berliner is granted a patent for the gramophone, the forerunner of the disc record player that we're all familiar with today. Berliner and Edison would fight a format war over the next decade or so, while Edison was also slugging it out in the war of the currents between AC and DC power, between the gramophone and the phonograph, which used a cylinder recording medium, with Berliner's machine eventually coming out on top. It was probably for the best. I have a hard time imagining that the album art for, say, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Axis Bold as Love would have looked as cool had it been wrapped around a cylinder rather than on a big disc record sleeve. On November 13th, in London, protesters marching against unemployment and various coercion acts aimed at Ireland were attacked by the Metropolitan Police and the British Army. 400 people were arrested, 75 people badly injured, and at least one protester was bayoneted. It came to be remembered as Bloody Sunday. And, in what might have been the happiest Christmas ever, on December 25th, Glenfiddich Single Malt Scotch Whiskey is first produced. Notable births in 1887 include William Frawley, an American actor best remembered for his role as Fred Mertz on I Love Lucy, Chico Marx of Marx Brothers fame, Prince Felix Yusupov, who would one day be the assassin of sinister Russian mystic Grigory Rasputin, Marc Chagall, Russian-born modernist painter, Shoeless Joe Jackson, star outfielder for the Chicago White Sox, who is best remembered today, largely thanks to the role he plays in the movie Field of Dreams, for his association with the Black Sox scandal of 1919, in which some players conspired to fix the World Series. Jackson's involvement has been fiercely debated, with many experts these days thinking that Jackson was not involved. Vidic Quisling Norwegian politician and a Nazi collaborator during World War II. His betrayal of Norway to the Nazis was considered so vile that his name became a noun in Scandinavian languages as well as in English. Quisling, a person who collaborates with an enemy occupying force. It is a synonym for traitor. Erwin Schrödinger, famed Austrian physicist and Nobel Prize laureate for his contributions to quantum theory, no word on when his cat was born, or not born. Marcus Garvey, publisher, journalist, and entrepreneur. Garvey was a proponent of black separatism. 
and called for the return of the African diaspora to ancestral lands. Chiang Kai-shek, general and first president of the Republic of China, American painter Georgia O'Keeffe, British World War II general Bernard Montgomery, famed horror film actor Boris Karloff, and Srinivasa Ramanujan, famed Indian mathematician. Though he lived to be only 32, Ramanujan compiled nearly 3,900 results in various forms of mathematics, nearly all of which have since been proven correct, and all this despite almost no formal or advanced training in pure mathematics. He's known for original and highly unconventional results, like the Ramanujan prime, the Ramanujan theta function, partition formula, and mock theta functions. I don't pretend to have any idea what they are or what they do, but they sure sound impressive, and have opened up whole new areas of work and research for mathematicians. His life story was turned into a 2015 movie called The Man Who Knew Infinity, starring Dev Patel. The film is a delight, and I recommend it. And the most notable death of 1887 was Doc Holliday, the American gunfighter, gambler, and sometime dentist. John Henry Doc Holliday is best known for his role as a temporary deputy marshal in the events leading up to and immediately following the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Holliday was survived by his common-law wife, the unfortunately nicknamed Big Nose Kate Horany. Also in 1887, when we left off last time, Tesla was showing his latest prototype AC motor to his business partner, Alfred Brown, and not getting the wowed reaction he'd hoped for. Having been impressed by Tesla's Egg of Columbus display, why would his backers continue to be suspicious of Tesla's insistence on AC motors and power systems? To help explain, a brief discussion of the state of the electrical industry in the mid-1880s. As we've talked about before, the dominant power standard was direct current, DC. In the late 1870s, a few electrical inventors in France, as well as Elihu Thompson in America, had experimented with using AC in their arc lighting systems. But once Charles Brush of Cleveland introduced an improved DC dynamo and regulator for arc lighting systems, AC no longer seemed as attractive an option, and American electricians switched to developing DC systems. This meant that nearly all of the central power stations in the United States in the mid-1880s were using DC, not AC, for both arc and incandescent lighting systems. There was little uniformity or industrial standards by this stage, and the central power stations that operated in dozens of U.S. cities used at least 20 different combinations of circuits and equipment, usually based on one company or another's system. So you could see how Peck and Brown would be skeptical of the value of an AC motor in this crazy, mixed-up DC world. However, at the same time, there was growing discussion in the electrical profession about using motors in central stations, driven especially by the nascent utility industry. Generator operators saw motors as a way to expand their customer base. While they would continue to provide electricity for lighting at night, motors would allow them to sell power to factories and streetcar lines during the day. To meet this demand, 
electrical equipment manufacturing firms added motors to their product lines, and by 1887, there were 15 companies producing motors, although these were DC motors. And if central stations could use motors to distribute power to factories, then Peck and Brown wondered whether a new efficient motor like Tesla's would allow them to capitalize on a grandiose scheme they had on the drawing board, using temperature differentials in the ocean to generate electrical power. It's a long story and one we're going to skip over, other than to say that they never got it up and running. Although, in recent years, the idea of harnessing these oceanic temperature differences to generate power has been revived. Again, something we're not going to get into today. The real drivers in AC power continued to be back in Europe, where a number of inventors worked to improve AC equipment and transformers. In London in 1883, Lucien Gollard and John Gibbs used one of the first AC transformers to connect both arc and incandescent lights in series to a single large generator. About the same time in Budapest, the engineers Tesla had met at Gans and company, Zipernowski, Blaffe, and Derry, we'll abbreviate them as ZBD, found they could send power over long distances via copper wires by having their generator produce high-voltage AC current. They used a transformer to step down the voltage to safer levels before it was delivered to homes and businesses. Within a few years, the ZBD system was being used to light several European cities. A crucial difference from Tesla's ideas, however, was that both the Gollard and Gibbs and ZBD systems used single-phase AC, which was all they needed for the desired voltage change. These European developments didn't go unnoticed by sharp-eyed Americans in the industry. Charles Coffin of the Thompson-Houston Company learned about the ZBD system during a European trip in 1885, and upon his return, urged Elihu Thompson to resume his work on AC. In 1886, Edison's agents in Europe warned that they were competing against Gans and Company for lighting contracts, and they convinced the Edison organization to secure an option on the American patent rights for the ZBD system. But canniest of them all was George Westinghouse. This is really our first meeting with the man who would have such a profound impact on Tesla's life and on the acceptance of his polyphase system as a global standard, and in an upcoming episode, we'll spend more time getting to know him. For right now, however, you should know that Westinghouse was a self-made man. He had invented air brakes and improved signal systems for the railroads, which is where he made his fortune. But he also excelled at running the companies needed to manufacture and market these inventions on a large scale. This business acumen was the missing piece for Tesla, and one that would doom his efforts later in his life. In the mid-1880s, Westinghouse became interested in electric lighting as a way of diversifying his union switch and signal company. His first plan was to develop a DC system like Edison's, but then in the spring of 1885, he read about Gollard and Gibbs's AC transformer. Westinghouse decided a competing format, not just a competing system, was needed for DC. He also saw opportunities to establish central AC stations in municipalities that the Edison organization couldn't serve. Edison's business model relied on high population densities in towns and cities where there was a densely populated downtown. Remember, the range of DC power from generating station to point of use was only about a mile. 
Given the high cost of generators and copper distribution lines, customer density was the only way to make DC systems cost-effective. In AC power, Westinghouse saw economies of scale. You could have a central generator, and by using transformers you could step the power up in voltage, send it long distances, and then step it down again for the use in home or business. This would allow profitable service to areas where the population was more dispersed, and where DC could never be cost competitive. When Westinghouse did something, he went all in. He quickly dispatched an agent to Europe to secure U.S. rights to the Gullard and Gibb system. In the summer of 1885, he had several Gullard and Gibb transformers shipped to his factory in Pittsburgh and had his people begin working on an AC-powered incandescent light system. By March of the following year, Westinghouse's AC system was lighting homes and businesses in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. This was still on an experimental scale and was run from a small lab that Westinghouse's team operated there. Building on this demonstration system, Westinghouse installed his first commercial AC system in Buffalo, New York in November 1886. Determined to keep up with Westinghouse, Thompson Houston installed their own AC system in May 1887 and by the end of that year had another 22 systems in place. The rapid development of AC lighting systems during 1887 was seen as such a remarkable breakthrough in the electrical community that in its January 1888 issue, its annual review issue, the magazine Electrical World, which had dismissed AC power in its pages only a year earlier, trumpeted the development of lighting systems using transformers as one of the most important events in the field during the previous year. At this point, the electrical engineering community made some popcorn and sat back to see what would happen next. They were fascinated by AC, not because they saw it as the technology of the future, but because of the gap between AC's promise and how such systems actually behaved in the real world. Yes, ideally, AC should allow centralized generation of power distributed to a large number of customers, but in reality, this was very much a work in progress. Transformers could step the voltage up and down, yes, but engineers at both Westinghouse and Thompson Houston found it difficult to design efficient transformers. Other critics were concerned about the cost of large AC power stations. Familiar with the difficulties of raising capital to build stations, both Edison and many central station operators believed that AC plants, which would have to be massive to generate power to send far afield compared to DC stations which were smaller and only expected to service a mile radius, would be too expensive to build and thus make AC power unprofitable. The safety of AC power was also an open question. Edison whose team had spent a great deal of time trying to identify better insulating materials for their low-voltage system, didn't believe that Westinghouse could safely protect people from high-voltage shocks. Edison's engineers in Berlin, who had got a close look at the ZBD system, cabled that the use of high-voltage AC was exceedingly dangerous. As early as 1886, Edison had written to his manager, quote, just as certain as death, Westinghouse will kill a customer within six months after he puts in a system of any size. He's got a new thing, and it will require a great deal of experimenting to get it working practically. It will never be free from danger. 
Others pointed out that the new AC system lacked an effective meter for measuring how much electricity was used by each individual consumer, and thus how much they should be billed, as well as an AC motor for providing power to factories and streetcars. And if, at this point, you're thinking to yourself, hey, I know somebody who's just devised an AC motor, well, slow down, don't get ahead of me. After completing a study of the pros and cons of AC, Edison declared that the AC power system was simply, quote, not worth the attention of practical men. Meanwhile, that most impractical of fellows, Nikola Tesla, was hard at work. The first AC motor he'd shown his partners, one that was a version of the Egg of Columbus rig but with an iron disc and not an egg for a rotor, had failed to impress. So, with the help of Zagetti, Tesla built another new AC motor on a different design. In this one, Tesla again used a laminated ring for the stator, but this time he placed four coils inside the ring. He tried several different rotors, including both a disc and a drum-wound rotor. Both worked, and when he reversed the electrical connections, the motors changed directions instantly. Because these motors used two or more alternating currents that were out of phase with each other, Tesla referred to them as his polyphase motors, and they were to be the heart of his system. As we've mentioned before, Tesla wasn't the only person working on AC motors at this time, but his polyphase motors were significantly different from anyone else's, in that he used a rotating magnetic field, a phenomenon not necessarily apparent in nature, and that he used eddy currents in the magnetic field to make his rotors turn, rather than delivering currents to the rotor directly. This motor got Peck and Brown's attention, and realizing that Tesla had invented a remarkable new device, by the end of 1887 they were urging him to patent the idea. As it happened, there was a law firm, Duncan, Curtis, and Page, right around the corner from Tesla's lab on Liberty Street, and they had some experience with applying for patents related to electric motors. It was a perfect fit. Tesla would make regular visits to one of the firm's partners, Parker W. Page bringing sketches and technical descriptions of his ideas. Tesla carefully prepared his written descriptions in the form of technical reports, not only as an aid to inventing, but also because he was hoping to write a book titled The History of a Thousand and One Alternating Current Motors. According to Page, Tesla emphasized broad principles in his descriptions, not specific motor designs. Using Tesla's reports and sketches, Page drafted the patent applications, which Tesla then checked and revised. Within a few weeks, Electrical World editor Thomas Comerford Martin, who people called TC, stopped by the shop, and impressed by what he saw, he got Tesla to write his first article on his inventions. Immediately taken with him, Martin described Tesla as having, quote, eyes that recall all the stories one has read of keenness of vision and phenomenal ability to see through things. He is an omnivorous reader who never forgets, and he possesses the peculiar facility in languages that enables the educated native of Eastern Europe to talk and write in at least half a dozen tongues. A more congenial companion cannot be desired. The conversation, dealing at first with things near at hand and next, reaches out and rises to the greater questions of life and duty and destiny. At this point, the question arose. How best to protect Tesla's invention? Unlike Tesla's earlier work, on his Arclight system for instance, for the polyphase motor, 
Page and Tesla decided that a series of applications for individual motor designs and other elements didn't capture the essence of the invention. Since his student days, Tesla had been thinking in terms of systems, not of individual motors or transformers, etc. In line with this thinking, Page and Tesla chose to file applications patenting the whole system for using polyphase motors to transmit power. In his application, filed mid-October 1887, Tesla claimed not just the invention of a new AC motor, but also a new system of electrical power transmission. Anticipating that the examiners in the patent office might not understand how his new motor worked, Tesla included an explanation of his theory as to how the rotating magnetic field caused the rotor to spin. Tesla and Page soon followed these applications up with submissions to the patent office that covered ideas for motors dating back to Tesla's student days in Prague. All of these applications, however, were regarded as too sweeping by the patent office. And in particular, the idea of claiming a motor and a system of power transmission in the same patent. Page and Tesla had to split three of the applications into separate claims, and so Tesla instead wound up with seven patents covering his polyphase ideas, all of which were issued on the 1st of May, 1888. We've spoken before about Tesla's nature as an inventor obsessed with the ideal. He wanted to design motors and generators that were carefully matched to each other so that they would be as efficient as possible and have the greatest possible output relative to their size. Once again, however, his technically-minded partner, Alfred Brown, was a wet blanket. Like the man at the Edison Works for whom Tesla had demonstrated his early ideas, Brown was concerned by the amount of copper wire in Tesla's system, and how that would add to the costs of manufacturing and to retail price. Tesla's polyphase system used four or six wires to connect generator and motor, and given the high cost of copper wiring, by the late 1880s, other electrical engineers had designed their systems to run on two or three wires, including the AC systems of both Westinghouse and the Thompson-Houston Company. This meant you couldn't simply hook up a four or six wire polyphase motor to existing electrical systems. To use Tesla's motor, a central power station would essentially have to start over from scratch, installing a special generator and wiring network. Brown saw this limiting the commercial potential of the polyphase system. So instead, in September 1887, Brown asked Tesla to design an AC motor that could connect to the two-wire system. Tesla was so enthralled with pursuing his ideal polyphase system that it hadn't occurred to him that anyone would want a motor that would work on existing AC lines. Tesla managed to design Brown a two-wire motor in a matter of days. Brown encouraged Tesla to prepare patent applications for all these ideas, believing that patents for AC motors that could be patched into existing distribution networks would be valuable. However, Tesla, ever the idealist and perfectionist, thought he ought to wait to patent the two-wire system until he'd increased its efficiency to be comparable to his polyphase motor. So, ignoring Brown's advice, he submitted patent applications only for his polyphase inventions. It wasn't for another six months, until April 1888, that the matter of the two-wire motor came up again. While working on a different patent altogether, 
Tesla's attorney, Parker Page, asked almost offhandedly whether the motor described in the patent application could run on two wires. When Tesla said yes, he recalled that, quote, Mr. Page looked at me in amazement and asked me to explain more fully. I remember it very well because it almost scared me to death. Page couldn't believe that Tesla hadn't bothered to mention he'd invented a two-wire motor, as there was a growing demand for just that kind of practical AC motor. Tesla kept quiet because of his worry that if Page knew about a two-wire design, he wouldn't take Tesla's polyphase system seriously. Tesla had, quote, purposely kept the knowledge of these two-wire motors from me, Page recalled, for fear that if I knew his polyphase motor could run on a single circuit like any other motor, that I would not believe the polyphase system amounted to anything, and would not, in consequence, draw good claims. Page immediately set out to secure patents for Tesla's two-wire motor. This wasn't to be the last time that Tesla's lack of foresight about patenting his inventions or commercializing them would stun his colleagues. More than simply a blind spot that other inventors might be expected to share, as W. Bernard Carlson argues, this is a symptom of a deeper truth about Tesla, his dedication to inventing based, as we've talked about before, on an ideal rather than on the nitty-gritty of practicality. Tesla's dedication to his polyphase system was due in part to its ideal. More than simply a superior technology in many respects to DC power, the polyphase system was a symmetrical system, a rotor cutting through a magnetic field generating multiple alternating currents, and multiple alternating currents producing motion in the motor via a rotating magnetic field. This symmetry wasn't something Tesla could manage with the two-wire split-phase motors. They simply didn't work that way, they weren't as elegant, and as a result, they just weren't Tesla's preferred motor or an invention he felt truly worthy of him. Through his entire career, Tesla would identify the big idea and try to develop a system around it. The problem was that that meant Tesla expected businessmen and consumers to adjust to his systems rather than Tesla adjusting his systems to the needs and wishes of the market. So Tesla would not have understood the objections to moving to a four-wire network. It was a more elegant design. Why wouldn't you want to use that system? Costs didn't matter. Practicality didn't matter. The world should just adjust to Tesla. Again, this wouldn't be the last time Tesla would think this way. He was eventually granted two groups of patents, one for the polyphase system components and another for the two-wire split-phase system. Unfortunately, Tesla's delay in filing the split-phase applications weakened his priority claims to the invention and led to patent litigation that lasted for the next 15 years, which was eventually settled in Tesla's favor. Determined to keep a closer eye on the inventor, Page began having Tesla give him regular oral reports on what he was up to during April and May 1888 so that Page, and not Tesla, could determine what was and wasn't patent-worthy. Tesla, now on board with the split-phase motor designs, didn't disappoint. I made daily experiments, Tesla later wrote, and improvised models from pieces of sheet iron and discs and rotors of various shapes placed in temporary bearings. 
I may have had possibly twenty finished models that were complete, as nearly as I can recollect. Meanwhile, now that it was clear to them that Tesla had come up with multiple promising AC motors, Peck and Brown set out to make money from Tesla's inventions. As Peck and Brown knew from their previous business ventures, there were three basic strategies open to the 19th century inventor, each of which had pros and cons. One, use the patents to start a new business to manufacture or use the invention. You had the advantage of a monopoly on the new invention for the term of the patent, which in the late 1880s was 17 years from issuance. And it was how someone like George Eastman used his patented system of roll-up film to build Eastman Kodak beginning in the 1880s. However, this strategy was highly risky, requiring a lot of money to get going, and if it paid off, by no means a certainty, it would do so only in the long run. And it needed an inventor who could master the intricacies of manufacturing and marketing, business skills which many inventors, Tesla among them, lacked. 2. Grant licenses to use the patents to an established manufacturer and collect royalties for each item manufactured. Licensing could be highly profitable, since you could grant a large number of licenses to different firms in different territories. The Edison Electric Light Company made a handsome profit this way by granting licenses for their incandescent light system to power companies in dozens of cities. But the cost of licensing was constant vigilance, as you always had to be on guard against competitors infringing your patents and cutting into your business. The Edison Electric Light Company inadvertently allowed several competitors to spring up by not aggressively defending its patents in the mid-1880s, and one of them, the Thompson-Houston Electric Company, eventually took over the Edison Company and formed General Electric in 1892. Or three, sell the patents outright to another entrepreneur or company. The inventor would realize an immediate profit and avoid having to risk manufacturing or marketing his invention. The downside was that you wouldn't make as much money as you would if you manufactured and sold your own product over a long period of time. But, of course, there was no guarantee that every startup would become Eastman Kodak or General Electric or Bell Telephone. Peck and Brown chose a hybrid of the second and third option, and a strategy you could sum up as patent, promote, sell. Tesla's inventions would be patented. Tesla would then vigorously promote them through interviews, demonstrations, and lectures in order to attract businessmen. Peck and Brown would then either sell or license his patents to either established manufacturers or other inventors who would set up their own new companies. The patenting part was easy. Promotion would be hard. Peck and Brown's strategy faced several hurdles including the sheer volume of patents of questionable value bombarding electrical manufacturing companies, including one for, and I'm not making this up, electric water. I don't know about you, but does that seem like a good idea? They also had to figure out how to raise Tesla's profile in the electrical engineering community. Since his arrival in America in 1884, Tesla had kept to himself and knew few people in the electrical engineering community. 
He also hadn't joined any of the recently formed electrical organizations, such as the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, the National Electrical Light Association, or the Electrical Club of New York. The electrical establishment might be skeptical that an unknown young man from somewhere none of them had ever heard of could have cracked the problem of a practical, efficient AC motor. Heck and Brown sought an endorsement of Tesla's motor from an expert, Professor William Anthony. An expert in electricity and optics, from 1872 to 1887, Anthony was professor of physics at Cornell University, where he tested dynamos and established the first electrical engineering program in the United States. Anthony left Cornell in 1887 to become the chief electrical engineer at the Mather Electric Company in Manchester, Connecticut. Given his academic credentials and commercial experience, Anthony was an ideal person to evaluate Tesla's motors. In March 1888, Peck and Brown sent Tesla to visit Professor Anthony in Manchester, where Tesla actually got stranded for several days by the Great Blizzard of 88, one of the most severe recorded blizzards in the history of the United States. Up to 58 inches of snow, that's nearly a meter and a half, fell between the Chesapeake Bay and Maine and through the Atlantic provinces of Canada, with sustained winds of more than 45 miles an hour, or 72 kilometers an hour, producing snowdrifts in excess of 50 feet, or 15 meters, high. Railroad tracks were impassable, and people were confined to their houses for up to a week. Telegraph and early electrical lines snapped under the weight of ice and snow. Tesla prepared two polyphase motors for Anthony to test. Peck and Brown decided to hold back Tesla's split-phase motors, worried about tipping their hand to just how much Tesla had already accomplished. The tests went well, and Anthony concluded that Tesla's AC motors were as efficient as the DC motors currently available. He was unfazed, pardon the pun, about the polyphase motor's need for four wires, since he assumed the motors would be installed in special industrial situations where the need for power would offset the cost of the extra wires. After conducting the tests, Anthony visited Tesla's laboratory in New York. There, Anthony and Tesla discussed specific design problems, such as how to construct a rotor that would respond best to eddy currents, and the relationship between the speed of the motor and the number of windings on the rotor. Anthony was impressed with Tesla's inventions and wrote to tell his colleague Dougald C. Jackson, professor of electrical engineering at the University of Wisconsin. Said Anthony, quote, I have seen a system of alternating current motors in New York that promised great things. I have seen such a rotor weighing 12 pounds running at 3,000 RPM when one of the AC circuits was suddenly reversed, reverse its rotation so suddenly that I could hardly see what it did. In all this, you understand, there is no commutator. The armatures have no connection with anything outside. It was a wonderful result to me. Anthony also discussed Tesla's achievements in a lecture he gave before the MIT Society of Arts in Boston in May 1888. With the thumbs up from Professor Anthony, Peck and Brown went to the press. Knowing that the polyphase patents would issue on May 1, 1888, they invited editors from the Electrical Weeklies to visit the Liberty Street Lab. In late April, Tesla demonstrated his polyphase motor to Charles Price of the Electrical Review 
and T.C. Martin of the Electrical World. Both Price and Martin were impressed, and Price ran a story about Tesla's motor just after the patents were issued. Professor William Anthony was a vice president, and T.C. Martin, a former president of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, AIEE, and they urged Tesla to give a paper on his polyphase inventions. On the 16th of May, 1888, O'Neill claims in Prodigal Genius that Tesla, quote, put his whole heart into preparing the lecture, as he saw it as a way for him, quote, to tell the electrical world the magnificent story of his complete alternating current system and the tremendous advantages it possessed over direct current. In actuality, exhausted and ill from overwork, Tesla at first declined to give a lecture. However, Anthony and Martin persisted, eventually convincing him, and Tesla, like a student who had slacked off on a term paper, wrote the lecture the night before he gave it. It would prove to be Tesla's coming out party to the electrical community, and a defining moment in his career. Tesla titled his AIEE lecture, A New System of Alternate Current Motors and Transformers. And as props for the lecture, he brought the two motors that Anthony had tested. Not wasting time, Tesla immediately made bold claims for polyphase AC. Quote, I now have the pleasure of bringing to your notice a novel system of electric distribution and transmission of power by means of alternate currents, which I am confident will at once establish the superior adaptability of these currents to the transmission of power. He laid out a careful description of the problems of the prevailing DC technology and his elegant solution, explained in words, diagrams, and simple mathematical calculations explaining how two separate alternating currents could create a rotating magnetic field. Even though his invention was revolutionary, because Tesla's lecture dealt with fundamentals, it was easily understood by the assembled engineers who were so used to DC systems. Anticipating objections that his polyphase motors could not be run on existing AC systems, Tesla argued that it would be relatively simple to change the connections in the rotor coils. Tesla's lecture was followed by a discussion, and T.C. Martin invited Professor Anthony to comment on his finds about the efficiency of Tesla's motors. Emphasizing that the two motors he tested were of a small experimental type and that the small motors tended to be less efficient than large ones, Anthony stated that Tesla's polyphase motors had an efficiency of 50 to 60 percent. Anthony was followed by Elihu Thompson of the Thompson Houston Company who engaged in an exchange of some really nerdy trash talk with Tesla. Thompson had been working on an AC motor since 1884, but unlike Tesla, his used a commutator, a fact he bragged about to the assembled crowd, indicating he'd largely missed the point of Tesla's system. Thompson had given a paper before the AIEE in June 1887, hoping to claim the AC motor as his invention. Thompson took this opportunity to remind the audience of this and of his own AC efforts and promised an update on his motor at a future meeting. This was Thompson's way of warning Tesla to expect competitions for patents and competition in the marketplace. Tesla, not to be cowed, chirped right back. While acknowledging Thompson as, quote, being foremost in his profession, Tesla explained that 
He had built a motor like Thompson's too, but hadn't pursued it because the best AC motor would be one without a commutator. Tesla was essentially saying, Yeah, I invented your motor too, and it was weak, son! At this point, the assembled membership of the AIEE agreed that Tesla was fire. The chair of the lecture said at its conclusion, quote, I believe that this motor, Mr. Tesla can correct me if I am not right, is the first good alternating current motor that has been put before the public anywhere. Is that not so, Mr. Tesla? Suck it, Thompson. And then, Tesla invited the audience back to his Liberty Street laboratory to see the motors in operation. Game, set, and match for Tesla. While he had won the day, Tesla made an enemy that night of Elihu Thompson, who would fight him on this and other priority issues, such as the Tesla coil, for the rest of their lives. But more on that in a later episode. Tesla's lecture was nothing less than a sensation in the electrical engineering community. Imagine it a bit like one of Steve Jobs' product presentations where he'd drop the iPad on the assembled crowd out of the blue, filling a desire for a specific piece of technology that people didn't even know they had. His lecture was reprinted by all of the major engineering journals, exposing a much broader audience to his ideas than had been able to attend the original lecture. In response, a number of electrical experts wrote letters to the editors commenting on Tesla's motor, and these too were printed in subsequent issues, keeping Tesla and his inventions on everyone's minds and lips for months after the lecture. Peck and Brown's patent promote cell strategy had worked perfectly to this point, with the polyphase motor having been, quote, heralded in the newspapers as an advance in the art, the stage was now set for Peck and Brown to offer Tesla's patents to the highest bidder. Next time, we'll see them do just that, as the inventor and entrepreneur George Westinghouse enters Tesla's life and changes it, and ours, forever. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, or share a link via your social media. I hope you'll go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more chance people who might not otherwise encounter the show will see it and subscribe. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, updates and alerts about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and time. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz. <laughs>